Matthew chapter number one is where we're at today. Yeah, back in Matthew, we're just kind of bouncing around like a bouncy ball through the uh, Gospels. I'm, Matthew chapter number one, I'm finding out, I've, I've already preached through Matthew once before, but I'm finding out Matthew is one of my favorite out of the Gospels. I don't know why it just is. I just keep finding my way back there. But anyway, Matthew chapter number one is where we'll be. And uh, we're, we're continuing our series in uh, the Gospels with focusing on Jesus. Uh, but since it is now uh, December, since we're coming up to Christmas, we're kind of going back and picking up some of the, the passages and the, uh, the circumstances that we breezed past whenever we started this series. Uh, but anyway, just looking back a little bit, uh, last week what we looked at was Jesus as he began to uh, call his 12 disciples. And we found that the guys that he chose probably aren't the ones that we would have chosen if it was up to us that God has a different way of going about things. And so he didn't choose based on character or ability or their station in life. And uh, really, I think he didn't choose them based on who they were, but who they would become because of him. And we know that the disciples, they started out, they were very rough around the edges, right? But by the end of it, God had transformed them. He had made something completely different out of them. And it's amazing what the power of God does in the life of a person, the ability that it has to transform someone. We we often look at Peter and we kind of uh, make fun of him a little bit because, not this Peter, the one in the Bible. But anyway, we look at him a little bit and we, we see that he's the one that's known for constantly sticking his foot in his mouth. He speaks before he thinks, okay? And I used to be very bad about that. The Lord has been working on me and I'm not as bad about it as I used to be most of the time, Okay. But anyway, so we kind of mock Peter about that, but we find that by the end of things that he becomes a completely different person. We looked at the Apostle Paul, and he went from being the persecutor of the church to being really one of the, the key uh, foundations of the church and his writings and different things. And so God has a way of working in people's lives. And so with our focus last week on looking at Jesus and how he interacted with these men, we found that he knew them, he knew their flaws, he knew their weaknesses, he knew their strengths, he knew everything about them, he knew them better than they knew themselves, and yet he still loved them. And just the part of me that I know about myself, I marvel sometimes that God loves me. And if you be honest with yourself, you probably think the same thing. You might think the same thing about me, I don't know. You look at other people and say, yeah, you sure God loves everybody? But anyway, so he loved them. And not only did he love them, he pursued after them. And so constantly the Lord was working in their lives and he was drawing them to himself and he was pursuing after them. Not only did he love them and know them and pursue after them, but he also saved them. It wasn't anything that they were. It wasn't any of the ability that they had on their own. It was by his mercy and grace that they were saved. And it's the same thing for us. It's not because of who we are. It's not because of what we do. It's because of who he is and what he did. And anyway, he saved them. Then he transformed them, completely changed them. We talked about that a little bit already. And then he sent them out. He had a purpose and he had a plan for them. And he says, go tell everybody what I did for you. That's essentially what he told them, right? Go out and tell the whole world about me. And so he sent them out. And so uh, with all of this, we see that without God, we can do nothing but Whenever we follow him, whenever we trust in him and yield our lives to him, he can do great things through us. So that is the, the huge emphasis as we look at the disciples. 
if you would just gather those 12 men together and look at them and say, okay, these 12 men are going to change the world, you'd say, you're crazy. These fishermen and these uh, political extremists and these tax collectors and all these, some of them are kind of weirdos, you know, they're going to change the world, really? Yes, once they get God in them, they're going to change the world. That was the difference. And so, as I said already, we're going to step back a little bit since we're in December. We're going to be looking at uh, the account of Jesus' birth and some of the events surrounding it uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, just thinking about this season, we've already uh, got well underway with it. Last week, we put together the Christmas bags. We've already began giving those out. We've been getting good responses from those. We've decorated for Christmas uh, uh, over at our house, there's all kinds of Christmas decorations up. I think Les has actually already got all of her Christmas shopping done. I'm still waiting on like maybe December 20th to start mine. Somewhere <laughs> around there. I might get it started December 20th. I don't know. Maybe 21st. Somewhere around there. But that's that's the way that we operate. Les has got everything figured out, already planned, already underway. I don't know how each of you all do it. But Christmas is already here. Uh, you go in all the shops, Christmas music is playing. Uh, you see all the decorations that are everywhere. They've got the Christmas lights up here in Longford. I still haven't figured it out, okay? If you go down the streets of Longford, you see the Christmas lights, okay? What are what color are Christmas lights usually? Red and green, right? Mm -hmm. For some reason, Longford's red, white, and blue. I think they got their stuff secondhand from the United States for Independence Day. <laughs> but anyway, they got the Christmas lights out, okay? <coughs> is that what it is? That's, that's to keep everyone on the straight and narrow. They figure the blue lights to keep things calmer. Okay, Kev's on it. So we've got all these things going on and all of this decorations and all the Christmas season. And I was actually walking down the streets here in town yesterday and ran into an elf and a Santa Claus. I kind of felt sorry for the guy that was an elf. I'm like, I hope you're getting paid well for this. I mean, he should have at least had like a beard to obscure his identity. I don't know. But anyway, though... Though Santa and shopping and all these festivities might crowd their way into Christmas, into the season, I'm grateful for the Christmas season because it forces all of the world to at least acknowledge Christ and his birth. They may try to crowd him out. They may have all these other things that are there as well. I know there's been plenty of Christians that get up in arms about it and everything. But here's the thing with it. Every time that they mention the name of Christmas, they are forced to consider Christ. Whenever they mention Christmas, they may think about Santa Claus, but they're also going to think about Mary and Joseph and that little nativity there with Jesus in the manger and the shepherds. And they'll even throw the, the wise men in, even though they didn't come until later. You know, all these things will happen. People are forced to recognize Jesus at this time of year. Not only that, on top of it, what are the things that the Christmas season, other than commercialism, what are the things that Christmas season is known for? Christmas <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should have said other than commercialism and food. But what? Giving. Presence, giving, love, family, togetherness, right? Goodwill toward men. And all of these things that are uh, Christian characteristics and the world celebrates them for a few weeks out of the year. They may kill each other for a Tickle Me Elmo, but yet still they're getting that gift for their grandchildren, right? And so they've got all these things that are going on this time of year, but they are acknowledging Christ. They're acknowledging the inherent goodness of the things of God. They are acknowledging biblical truths, whether they know it or not, and they're actually celebrating them. 
They're saying that the things that the Bible has told us all along are good and are helpful and true. They're acknowledging that and they're agreeing with it. And people long for the togetherness and for the love and for the generosity and all of these things. And, oh, wouldn't it be great if it was that way year-round? And that's what God seeks to do in people's lives whenever he begins transforming them. And he desires to change us from our, uh, from our selfishness and from our pride and our arrogance and from our exclusivity and tries to bring us to where we consider others and we love one another and that we have peace and goodwill toward men. We have a generosity. God wants to cultivate that in us, but it's not going to happen until we are born again. And so God does this in our lives. And so Christmas is about all of these things. But as we're talking about all of these, of course, one of the greatest things that we emphasize this time of year, I've already talked about it once already, is the, the presence, the gifts and things that are given. And it all comes back to the ultimate gift that was given, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate Christmas gift. He is the greatest Christmas gift. He is the reason we celebrate today. It isn't Santa Claus. It isn't Rudolph. It is because of Jesus. And so I want to focus on this thought that Jesus is the greatest Christmas gift. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse number 18. And we're going to be looking at this from Joseph's point of view, okay? Matthew 1, verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as uh, his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found of child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it may be, might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and they shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took upon him, took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and called his name Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we thank you for this Christmas season, Lord, and for the celebrations and the festivities and everything. But we, we thank you most of all, Lord, for uh, coming down to this earth, Lord, for uh, living a perfect and sinless life and dying uh, a death on our place and our part, Lord, uh, so that we can have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for these things. And we just ask you that you'd be with our service, Lord, that you'd be with each person here, that you would deal with hearts and lives. And Lord, do exactly that which is needed today. We thank you so much for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we look at this passage here, we find... Uh, that Joseph and Mary are betrothed to be married. Okay, that's a little bit different than what we have today. We have uh, whenever someone's intending to get married, they get engaged, right? Whenever they get engaged, it just basically says, okay, uh, she's got a ring and he's got uh, a lot of money to save up. But anyway, <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. But anyway, so whenever someone is... 
whenever someone is engaged today, it means that they have the intention of getting married. But if they decide otherwise, she gives a ring back or takes it to the pawn shop and they go on their merry way, right? But anyway, with betrothal during this period, it was as good as already being married, except for they hadn't actually came together yet. Okay? And so whenever uh, they were during this betrothal period, Joseph was working and he was preparing and he was getting a, a house ready and probably getting a dowry ready and all these different things. And uh, it was during this time that Mary disappears for about three months. She disappears for about three months. She goes down and visits her cousin Elizabeth, who is an older woman by now, and is miraculously pregnant. She'd never been able to have children, but now she is pregnant, and everybody talks about what a miracle it was and different things. And so Mary goes down to see Elizabeth, and she comes back, and surprise, she's pregnant. And so Joseph now has a dilemma. Put yourself in Joseph's position. This woman he is planning to get married, get married to. They're betrothed. Everything is ready. She's supposed to be a virgin. She went to visit her aunt, and all of a sudden she is pregnant. What do you assume? Cheating. She's been cheating on me. Yeah, I see you went down and visited your aunt. <laughs> and so that's not very good news, is it? That definitely isn't the present that he was looking for. Mary comes back and says, look what I got while I was down, right? <laughs> not a good gift. Definitely not a great gift. And so she comes back and says, guess what I, bought you? I brought you? And anyway, Joseph was making plans to put her away privately. Uh, under the law, he could have taken her, publicly shamed her, and had her executed. Aren't you all glad we're not under that system anymore, right? He could have done that, but it says him being a just man, and he had tender feelings. He loved Mary. And he says, yes, you may have cheated on me and all of this, but I'm not going to retaliate against her. I will quietly go seek out a divorce and annulment of our marriage, and I will send her on her cheating way, and I will just go about and mourn my loss and move on with my life and try to find another woman. And this is the idea that he has. And so he's trying to process all these emotions and all of these thoughts that's in his heart at this time. And while he's mulling over his, his uh, path that he's going to choose here, it says the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Joseph, don't be afraid to go ahead and take her to be your wife. She has been faithful to you all along. She hasn't cheated on you that she is pregnant with a child of the Holy Ghost. Okay. God has miraculously made her pregnant. He has a plan. And guess what? He has put you and Mary into his plan. And if you thought he had a lot to process before, imagine getting unloaded with this information, right? I mean, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have believed it if it had come from anybody else, right? Mary, if she would have came to him and said, hey, guess what? I'm pregnant, but it's not what you think. That wouldn't do any good, would it? But the angel of the Lord came and said, go ahead, marry her, take her into yourself, because God is doing something special here. And he, Joseph says, okay, since it comes from an angel, I guess I'll believe it. And he takes her into himself, marries her, and knew her not until she was delivered of the child and called his name Jesus. And so this was a lot to take in, but it went from being a tragedy to being a great gift. Though it came with its share of difficulties for Joseph, 
though many people would never believe their story, and there would be things that he would have to, uh, to go through because of this, imagine being put into God's story, immortalized in the words of his book, and being able to be the stepfather of the Son of God. Having Jesus Christ to be there in your household, to be your child. Can you imagine that? What a great gift that would be. I know we just sung the song away in a manger in the second verse. Uh, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, little Lord Jesus crying. Make. That would be great if that actually worked. But Jesus was a baby. I figure if the cattle were lowing and woke him, he probably cried. But God had given a great gift to Mary and Joseph, but an even greater gift to us. And so as he's waiting through all these thoughts and emotions, God sorts out all of this, tells him all of what's going to happen, or at least what he needs to know. And really, this is what the gospel is. We realize that we're in a mess. We realize that there is a situation that we don't know how to conquer. We are sinners. We are separated from God. And then the good news comes and says, but I've got a plan. I've already taken care of that. As we're Christians and we're trying to live this Christian life and we continue to realize that we still don't have it figured out, that we still still sin, we still mess up, the gospel tells us you can't fix you. You can't change you. You can't recreate you, but Christ can. It is him that does a work in us. And so that's what the gospel is. There's a mess and only God can fix it, right? And this is what Joseph saw. And so anyway, in this passage, is Joseph is informed that God is doing what the Jews had been looking for centuries for and was including Joseph in it, he would have had all of these different thoughts and feelings that we talked about. He would have thought that Mary had been unfaithful, and then he was glad that she wasn't unfaithful. But now he's looking at this idea of how in the world do you raise the Son of God? Any parent knows that raising a child itself is a daunting task, but to raise the Son of God, yes, it was a gift. Every child is a gift, but what a great gift they had. And so anyway, I want to take just several moments and look at the greatest Christmas gift. First thing I want to bring out about it here is that the gift was a promise gift. It was a promise gift. If we look at this, I've already mentioned that the Jews had been looking for centuries for the Messiah to come. They had been talking about it. They had been hoping for it. They had been looking for it. They had been studying out the prophecies. They had been wondering, when is it? that this Messiah would come, the one that God had promised. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies concerning Jesus, telling about him coming. Uh, scholars estimate that whenever Jesus came between his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, that he fulfilled some 300 separate and specific prophecies. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? Lots of prophecies in the Bible, but Jesus' life, birth, death, all those things fulfilled some 300 different prophecies. And the Jews have been mulling these over for a long time and saying, when is he going to come? Well, guess what? In the passage that we read here, he's coming finally, right? He has a prophesied gift. We can look at almost all of the prophets, if not all of them, told about the one that would come. The psalmist talked about the one who would come. And even some of Israel's enemies had recorded about the coming of the Lord. So many different places in the Old Testament, I'm not going to go through them, talked about how Israel was going to throw off their enemies, that the Messiah was going to come, that he was going to rule and reign, all these different things. And they were looking for 
God to send this greatest gift to the world. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter number three. Whenever Adam and Eve first sinned, we know what happened there, right? God told Adam and Eve that I will send the seed of a woman to bruise the head of the serpent. What is he saying? There's going to be a virgin-born child that is going to conquer Satan, right? It's going to conquer sin. All the way back in Genesis chapter number three, it was promised that this one would come. We can go forward and see that uh, as he slaughtered the innocent animal, clothed their nakedness. Once again, it was foreshadowing, it was telling, it was prophesying that one would come who would clothe us in righteousness through his death. That's what they had been looking for. If we look throughout the, the Old Testament, this picture is repeated over and over again. We find that whenever the Jews are getting ready to flee Egypt, that it is said that the firstborn of every child in Egypt, or of every family in Egypt, is going to die. But if they slaughter a lamb and put his blood over the doors, that that child would not die, and the lamb would die in its place. And so what were they doing? They were saying there is going to be one coming that is going to die in our place so that the guilty may go free. We see whenever we come to the law, God gives them all of the commands. He tells them all of the things that they were to do and all of the things that were sinful. And we look at the law and we, we dislike the law, don't we? Because we realize how many times that we break it. But along with the law, he makes sacrifices and says, whenever you break the law, you can kill an innocent animal, clothe yourself in its righteousness, so to speak. It wasn't that that animal was able to save anyone. It wasn't that that animal was able to redeem anyone. But it was all looking forward to that one that would come. It was all prophetic of that promise. It was all prophetic of Jesus that he would come and that he would lay down his life, that he would take away the sins of the world. And so all through the Old Testament, we are looking toward that. We see that as Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain and he is meant to be a sacrifice up on the altar. And it says, uh, Isaac asks, here's the wood, here's the fire, but where is the lamb for the offering? And Abraham says to his son, God will provide himself a lamb. Whenever he gets up to the, the altar and he's ready to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, there's a ram that's caught in the thicket by its horns and it is offered up in its place. We find this repeated over and over that though there was one who was intended to die, one that was guilty and worthy of death, that God was going to provide one that could atone for their sins, that could cover their sins, that could pay the penalty that they were supposed to pay and free them. And all through the Old Testament, they were looking forward to that day. Every lamb that they slaughtered, every bull, every ox, and every goat that they slaughtered throughout the Old Testament was looking forward to that lamb that would come. I already mentioned, too, that uh, there was prophecies about him being a ruler and being a king. And by the way, this is where a lot of people have trouble today with seeing uh, and accepting Jesus as the suffering lamb because he is also the ruling and the reigning king. And so the Jews were saying, we've been oppressed, we've been uh, brought under chastisement and punishment. When is going to come the one who is going to reign and rule and conquer? When is he going to come? They had been looking for him. Uh, under David's rule, God told David, he said, whenever, 
Whenever David had been faithful and had served him and Solomon as well, God promised them and said, I'm going to make your houses sure, and there is going to be a ruler that comes up from your families that will reign forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Jews were looking forward to that. The gift had been promised for centuries, and they had been seeking it for centuries. But here's the thing about gifts. You realize that the longer that you're looking forward to a gift, the longer you're anticipating the gift, the more excited you get about it. You ever do that with your kids? You tell them ahead of time, give them a little bit of time, work up the excitement, say, I got you a gift. You tell them whatever you buy, but you don't let them know what it is. Yeah. And so there's an excitement that's building. And so they had been waiting for a long time. They had been looking for a long time. And finally, we come to this chance up here in, I don't want to say this chance, this, this time, this event in Bethlehem, where finally the gift bursts on the scene. And so the world waited a long time for this gift. And finally, God is going to present the gift. So we saw the gift uh, promised. Now the gift presented. <coughs> the gift was long, long promised, long anticipated. God finally brought it to this earth in the form of a baby in a manger. It's not what they were expecting, was it? God put on flesh and he became man and he set in motion his plan for redemption that he had formulated before the foundation of the earth. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It means that God knew that this was what, was what he was going to do. And he had waited, he had promised all the way up until this time. And now he has finally presented this gift to mankind. The gift wasn't wrapped in the most expensive and ornate packaging and paper, but instead was placed in a poor, young Jewish girl. Not the one that you would be expecting. She wasn't brought into the palace. She wasn't in the royal family. She wasn't amongst the, the priestly lineage. But instead, just a poor, normal, but godly Jewish girl. He wasn't presented with great pomp and celebration, but instead he was brought into this world in a crowded in busy city during the time of uh, taxes and census and whatnot. There was no room in the inn, so they ended up in a stable. His bassinet, his cradle was a manger. He was surrounded by animals and by shepherds. You would think if the greatest gift ever given, you'd think it'd be wrapped a little different. You'd think it'd be presented in a different way. You realize that God doesn't do things the way that we do things. The Bible says that his Ways are greater than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, right? And so as he presented this gift, he did it differently than what we would have thought he would have done. The welcoming committee of the, the newborn baby, of the Messiah, of the Christ, the world, the one that was going to take away the sins of the world, the greatest gift ever presented to this earth, the welcoming committee was cattle and sheep and itchy hay and smelly stalls, stinky shepherds. That was a welcoming committee. And so it wasn't presented the way we would have expected, and that's why so many people overlook and miss out on Jesus. They have their ideas, they have their expectations on who Jesus is supposed to be, on what Christianity is supposed to be about, and they miss out on it because it doesn't look like they think it should. But you do look at all the ones who did get in on it, the shepherds, the wise men, a uh, host of angels, 
And there was countless others who was looking for a savior that got in on this. And so we saw the gift given, or excuse me, the gift promised, the gift presented. And then we see the gift praised. What was the response of those who came and saw Jesus? The ones who had heard about Jesus, the ones that was informed about this gift. Whenever we receive a gift, what do we do? Give thanks, hopefully, right? Whenever we give a gift, that's what we hope to receive. You ever give a gift and the people who you give it to seems to not care, not be appreciative at all? Do it all the time, right? And so we want anticipation. We want excitement. We want appreciation. We at least want a thank you. And so in this, we see a bit of why Jesus was presented in the manner that he was. How? There you go. How much do you think he would have been appreciated? How much do you think that he would have been praised and honored if he had been born into the king's house? If he had been born into royalty or into the priestly lineage and all these different ones? See, he came to save those who were seeking him. Jesus says, I, called, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, right? And so whenever we look at this, we find that all through the account of Jesus' birth, that there are people and there are angels who are praising God. If you look at Luke's account of the gospel in chapter number one, you find Mary and Elizabeth both giving praise and glory and honor to God for the gift that was given. As Mary shows up at Elizabeth's house, says that the baby, John the Baptist, that was in Elizabeth's womb, leaped for joy whenever Mary came to his presence because of Jesus being in her womb. We find Elizabeth giving honor and praise and glory to God, a little bit of prophecy going on there. And then Mary responding once again and giving praise and honor and glory to God. Uh, in chapter number two, we find the shepherds are praising and giving glory and honoring God for the gift that has been given and the fact that God saw fit to let them in on it, right? They weren't expecting for something so extravagant and something so great to be revealed to them. They didn't think that the lowly shepherds would be the ones that were invited to it, and they were giving God honor and glory and praise. We find Anna and Simeon, two older folks that was around the temple and whatnot and have been waiting for years. They had been anticipating this gift. And whenever they lay eyes on Jesus, what do they do? They praise, they glorify God. This was their response to it. We can look in Matthew, we find the wise men and their praise and their honor of Jesus. And their praise wasn't superficial or worked up. Whenever we talk about praise and how we should be thankful and how we should give God honor and praise, it's almost as if we have to work it up, right? It's almost as if it's something that's done by command. It's something that is required or something that is expected. Remember growing up whenever, you know, your grandparents would buy you things that you didn't really like? It's like, oh, yes, a pack of socks. But you had to pretend to be thankful? Or was I the only one? That's how we tend to be with this greatest gift that God has given us, almost as if it's a pack of socks. We fail to realize and fail to appreciate the greatness of it. We fail to appreciate what has actually been given to us and who God is and what he is doing in our lives, what he has already done for us and what he has planned for us. We have taken and we have kind of pushed it all in and we just kind of forget 
how great God is, we fail to evaluate, we fail to measure the true worth and value of what God has given for us. And so it's just like, oh yeah, it's a pair of socks. We don't give him praise and glory. It's not for these guys in the Bible. It wasn't superficial. It wasn't worked up. It flowed freely out of their appreciation for both the gift and the giver. And so I think Christmas should be a time of reflection for about who Christ is. He is the Son of God, come down, robed in human <laughs> flesh, lived a sinless and perfect life so that he could die in the place of you and I. Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. We were doomed to be separated and alienated from God for all eternity because of our sins. And we know that we're sinners. We know that we do wrong. We know that we fail. There, there's things that come short. And because of that, we are worthy of death and of separation from God. But Jesus says, I love them. I'll come down. I will pay the price. I'll pay the penalty for them so that they don't have to. And so he died for us, and he rose again the third day, victorious over death, hell, and the grave, so that we too can live with him. And then he says, I go to prepare a place for you. He says, I'm going to not just save you from the penalty of your sins, I'm going to perfect you. I'm going to give you my righteousness so you can live eternally with me in the place that I've prepared in glory. And so for those of us who are saved, those who have trusted Christ as our Savior, we don't have to worry about our sins. They've been taken care of. God is in us and working in us and through us. He is fitting us for heaven, for glory. He is changing us from the inside out. And one day he's going to come back. He's going to get us. He's going to take us to live eternally with him. Does that not seem like a pretty good gift? Do you know what you have to do to get that gift? You receive it. Have you ever had to pay for a gift? It's not a gift if you have to pay for it, right? But you can't partake of that gift unless you receive it. So for us who have received it, for those of us who have accepted his offer, we have so much to thank him for. We have so much to look forward to, so much to praise him for. If it was not for him, I would be headed to hell. If it was not for him, I would have no hope. I would have no future. I would have nothing to look forward to. But because of him, my future is bright. Because of him, I have heaven to look forward to. Because of him, I don't have to fear death and punishment. Because of him, I can be assured. I can be hopeful. I can be strengthened in all these things. He has done so much, and so he deserves our praise. And so whenever we think on this, whenever we uh, consider this, meditate on this, reflect on this, praise should be the natural response, shouldn't it? I can rest assured that just as he has kept all of his promises so far, he's going to keep all the rest of the promises that he has given. And he has given us exceeding great and precious promises, the Bible says. And so we have a great God. We have a wonderful Savior. And so we need to praise God for this gift. So the fourth and the last thing I want to bring out here is the gift proclaimed. It was promised. It was presented. It was praised. And then it was proclaimed. Whenever you get a great gift, what do you tend to do with it or do about it? 
Don't tell people about it, right? I kind of let you in on the answer already. You tell people about it. Look what I got, right? I remember whenever I went, whenever I was still in school, according to the girls, that was back in ancient times, right? They think I'm old. But whenever I went to school, you'd have your Christmas break, and whenever you came back from your Christmas break, the question everybody had, what did you get for Christmas? Do I remember that? What did you get for Christmas? And you know the ones who got the really cool gifts? No one had to ask them because they were coming and volunteering. And those of us got socks from Grandma, we were keeping quiet, right? But anyway, those who got the cool gifts, they were coming and saying, guess what I got for Christmas? And they were telling about it and they were showing it off. They wanted to, to bring it in and tell. And it's not just with kids, but it's adults as well. Do you still do that at work? Come back from work, oh, did you get anything good for Christmas? What did you get your kids for Christmas, right? It's kind of what becomes as adults. But you talk about the gifts that have been given. And so whenever we look at this passage and the one surrounding Jesus' birth, we find over and over whenever people <laughs> heard about Jesus, whenever they lay their eyes on Jesus, whenever they realized or at least to an extent realized what was going on, they started going out and they told everyone about it, right? The shepherds came and they saw Jesus laying there in the manger and it says that they went and spread abroad, spread abroad the glad tidings, right? Anna, one of the ones that we talked about there earlier that was in the temple, she saw Jesus and it says that she spake of him to all that looked for redemption in Israel. Whenever people came in contact with Jesus, they began telling people about it. During Jesus' ministry, he often told people to keep quiet about what he had done. And you realize that none of them obeyed him. Jesus would heal them. The blind would see, the lame would walk, and he'd say, see that you tell no man. And what was the first thing that he did? Told everybody. And it came to there were so many, so many people, so big of crowds that were coming around Jesus because of these people who had testified of what he had done so big of crowds that here there was no place that he could go that people weren't thronging him. There's no place they could go to get peace because God had done great things for people and they couldn't keep quiet about it. You find the woman at the well. He didn't tell her to keep quiet, but Jesus came to her. They had a conversation. And whenever she left her water pot, she believed on him. She realized who he was. She left her water pot. She went back into town. And what was it that she said? Come see a man that told me all that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Right? Whenever there was the lame man that Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. And he did it on the Sabbath day. And he was going through the city and people were uh, mad at him. The religious leaders were mad at him because he was carrying his bed on the Sabbath. And they said, tell us who did this to you. We know that he's a sinner. And he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But this I do know. I once, I got the wrong one. It wasn't the lame man. It was a blind man. He says, I once was blind and now I see, right? And so they were going about and they were telling, they were proclaiming about this gift that they had received. They were telling people <coughs> And so I think it's only natural whenever we receive something so great, whenever we are 
benefited so greatly by the things of God. It's only natural to be telling people about it. And so Jesus has done something great for us. And I think we get it backward whenever it comes to the idea of evangelism, of telling people about him. We look into the Great Commission. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And we see it as a task that has to be accomplished. Almost like a chore on the list. And we've got the wrong perspective in it. We approach it like a job. We approach it like a chore. We don't see... We don't see that attitude with all of the people who came in contact with Jesus. We don't see them looking at it in this way. We don't see them saying, oh, man, i got to go tell people that Jesus healed me. Oh, man, do I really have to let people know that I was a blind man and now I see? Do I have to go and tell people that you know, we were out there and he was teaching for a long time and we were hungry and he took a little boy's lunch and he took that little lunch and he fed thousands of people with it. Do I really have to talk about that? That sounds pretty stupid, doesn't it? Whenever something phenomenal happens, whenever God works in a mighty way, it should be only natural that we praise him for it and we proclaim it, we tell people about it. And I don't say any of this to shame any of us. I'm simply pointing out that we've got some wrong thinking about us. We focus on what we think we have to do rather than on who he is and what he has done. Whenever our focus gets on him, these things happen naturally, right? And I think that is the essence of true Christianity. It's not about what we do. It's about what he's done. You go to religions all around this world, and it's all do, do, do. It's all about what you do, what you have to do. You have to participate in this. You have to go here. You have to do these works. You have to uh, go through all these ceremonies and situations and things. And what it comes down to is God has given us the greatest gift. God says, you can't save yourself, so let me come down and do it for you. You can't transform your life. You can't clean yourself up. Let me come and do it for you. And so if you are unsure of where you're going to spend eternity, if there's never been a time in your life that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, his death, burial, resurrection, for the payment for your sin, for the salvation of your soul, if there's never been a time like that, all you have to do is quit trying to work your way to heaven. Quit trying to do enough and realize he has already done it and call upon him as your savior. Realize you're a sinner and call upon him and ask him to save your soul. Say, I can't save me. I can't do enough good works, but I know that you died for me and your word says that if I call upon you that you will forgive my sins and you'll save my soul. If you'll do that, you can be a child of God. You can be in the ship like we talked about in Sunday school. And if you're a Christian in here today, if you have done that and you're trying to work out your salvation, taking that verse out of context a bit, if you are trying to be good enough, if you are trying to be deserving of the salvation that he's already given you, if you're trying to keep all the commands and be a good enough person, you're going about it the wrong way. Because the Bible tells us plainly, you can't do it. 
but it is by yielding to him, allowing him to do the work in you. You couldn't save yourself. You can't clean yourself up, but it is by turning to him and allowing him to do that work. That's what it's about. This is why it's a gift. If you are trying to praise him in order for him to bless you and to be happy with you, if you are trying to uh, proclaim him so that you're filling out the boxes and so you're being obedient and doing these things, you've got the wrong idea. God has sent us the greatest gift in Jesus Christ, who is able to save us and he is able to transform us and he is able to do all things in us whenever we are looking to him and not to us. The gospel is summed up in, you can't do it, but Jesus can. And that's why it is a great gift. We can praise God and say, God, I had no hope, but thank you for coming down and dying for me and giving me eternal life. We can go out and proclaim it to others and say, you know what? It's not because I'm a good person. It's not because of the good works that I did. It's not because of anything in me, but it is because of Jesus Christ that I am forgiven, that I am set free, and that heaven is my home. And guess what? He'll do it for you too. We can proclaim it because God has done something great for us. So what is Christmas all about? Mangers and wise men and shepherds and angels. And... No, it is about God making a promise that I'm going to come down, I'm going to provide a way for you to come back to me. And he did it. He made salvation possible. He made a way for us to come to him. People who are unworthy and unable, incapable of approaching to God, now made worthy through the blood of Christ. That is what Christmas is about. And so throughout this month of December, in all of the festivities and all of the celebrations and all the things that's going on, don't lose sight of Jesus. Take time and celebrate the greatest gift ever given. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, and we thank you for this time here in your word. And Lord, we thank you for these thoughts that you've given, Lord. I just pray, ask you, Lord, that you bless them and do a work in the hearts and lives of each person here. Do exactly that which is needed. Lord, I know that if it was up to me, Lord, I couldn't, I couldn't manage heaven. I couldn't, uh, couldn't make myself right with you. I could never do enough good works to outweigh my bad works or any of those things. But Lord, I thank you because of Jesus that I can be set free, that I can be saved, that I can know that heaven is my home. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know that, doesn't have that confidence, Lord, I pray that today they would do business with you. I pray that today they would get right with you, Lord. Lord, if there's a Christian in here today that has fell back into that track of trying to work their way in, trying to uh, make it up to you, trying to do enough good works, trying to do all these things, Lord, I pray that they would come back to you, Lord, the greatest gift, Lord, and allow you to work in them and do your perfect work in them. Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do and all you're going to do. I ask you to bless our time together today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.